Um, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Michael Chaplin, and I'm chairing this morning's session. Welcome to you all. Um, I'd like to thank uh, formerly the University of Sunderland, who are sponsoring this event, and uh, great thanks to them. Um, uh, you will have your chance to ask our guest this morning questions, but uh, he, he's going to do a little presentation himself first. He needs really no introdu introduction from me. You've all seen him on the telly in the rain, standing outside 10 Downing Street. Uh, will you please welcome Nick Robinson? Michael, thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, lovely to see you, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to the Durham Book Festival for having me. What better and more lovely day could there be to be in Durham? A balmy northeast day. The last time I was in the city, which I really mean is one of my favourites, because it's a proper city, isn't it? It's a beautiful city. It's got proper history. There's a sense of kind of real civic identity in Durham that there isn't in many parts of our country anymore. But the last time I was here was for the Miners' Gala a couple of years ago. I was doing some filming for a documentary. And then I, I remember that poor Chilean miner, the guy who'd been underground, and someone had said, you've got to go to Durham for the Miners' Gala. And there was, as he was speaking, there was horizontal rain <laughs> coming into his face. And I would look round, and all I could see was people running to get away from the cold and the wet. So uh, I'm going to come here on a sunny day sometime soon, I hope. But thank you very much indeed for coming today and uh, to the uh, festival for hosting me. I should start by saying it is slightly odd to see you. And I, I put the emphasis on the word see because the curiosity of my job, of course, is that you're told, you know, every so often how many million people are watching the television news or listening to the Today programme, the two big things I do. But, of course, you never see any of them. Uh, you are broadcasting in the dark uh, on your own to a camera. Or, in the mornings, I'm doing it from a little box on my desk down in the basement of my house. And when you're not seeing anybody at all. This means, of course, that sometimes you can forget that people are there. First, early in the morning, I tend to go down and my children will bring me a piece of tea and toast if they're in a good mood. They'll grunt if they're in a bad mood as they're teenagers. And I will sit with my headphones on about to do the Today programme. And I'm not sure you want this image on a Saturday morning. I'm afraid I'm not always entirely dressed when I'm going on the radio because I've had a late night, not got home till about 11 the night before and it's sort of 7.30 or 8 in the morning. So I don't want to put my suit on by then. And I will sit there and of course... What you forget is real life has to carry on around you. You know, the dog barks. You're thinking, I hope they're not hearing it on the radio. And on one occasion, I was doing an interview in which I was interviewing a politician, George Mitchell, a former American senator who was doing the peace process. And uh, I said to my kids, look, Daddy's got to interview a very important politician. Would you go up to your room and play? Because Mummy's away for the day. They were 12 and 14 at the time. You know, that's how I talked to my team. No, they were toddlers at the time. So I said, please go up, because I've got to do this interview. And I started to do my interview. And just as I was uh, about to ask my first very serious question, there was just a rattling sound. And I thought, hmm, things aren't right. And if you're a man in the audience, a middle-aged man, you'll probably understand what I'm saying here. Do you ever have those moments where you have to choose between your career and your family? And you're a man, so you choose your career. Of course you do. You think, sod the children. I've got to get on with my job. So uh, I'm hearing this rattling sound. And I say, Senator Mitchell, do you believe Jerry Adams? And there's a sound that goes, Daddy! Do you believe that Jerry Adams is a man of peace? Daddy! And I just carry on with the interview. 
and he's beginning to say, and then he pauses, beginning to talk about the peace process, very important, delicate moment of the peace process. He pauses for a second to say that, on balance, Mr. Robinson, and then I suddenly hear, Daddy, we're locked in! <laughs> and they managed, to, they managed to take the the door handle off their door. Took the, it took the technical guys about three hours to edit what is still known as the Daddy Will Locked In Peace Process interview in order for it to be used. So it is very nice to see you, as I say. It's slightly reassuring, if slightly nerve-wracking, uh, to see your audience. Because not only, as I said, do I not see the audience first thing in the morning, but of course, my normal habitat, you know, is to stand on Downing Street, uh, with a camera, and it's dark, and it's quite often sort of what we can now call Durham weather, you know? It's kind of rain and wind and not very warm. And the question I'm most commonly asked, and it's the reason I wrote this book, is, why'd you do that? What on earth are you outside an empty building in the dark and the wet rain and the wind for? Why don't you just go in that nice warm studio? And for a long time when people ask me this question, I used to give them the practical answer. And the practical answer is that, actually, I don't work in the BBC newsroom. It's about three-quarters of an hour, an hour away from where I am in West London. Uh, so it would be quite a hike to go there to broadcast. I operate like a foreign correspondent, but in a, in a domestic location. I am a foreign correspondent for the village of Westminster. And so I want to be in Westminster. That's where I do my job. And then they said, well, look, hold on, you've got a little studio in Westminster. We sometimes see it for, for, for guests. Why don't you go in there? And I tried giving a sort of boring answer about, well, it, you know, it doesn't have any symbolism and it's not exciting and it's not... And people didn't find this very convincing. And so I started to think some more about why I valued broadcasting live from Downing Street. And the reason I concluded was for a very simple reason, because I could. And what I meant by that was... I could broadcast live from Downing Street, unlike people in countries all over the world, in which to get close to the people of power would either be impossible or have you thrown in jail. I could be in Downing Street because there had been a struggle over centuries for the right to report on what people in power did. And now we take this for granted, don't we? But one of the reasons I don't take it for granted, I think, is because of my roots. My grandparents on my mother's side were German-Jewish refugees. They fled the Nazis in the 30s. And um, they, they probably wished they had come to Durham or come to England. They made, the mistake, they made the mistake of fleeing to China, where promptly they had to flee the communists. So having grown up visiting them, going to their flat, and seeing on the walls the books about the Holocaust and the Nazis and the books about the Chinese and the communists... I never needed it explaining to me why politics mattered. And I, to this day, still get quite frustrated with people who say, not if they don't like the current crop of politicians, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do, uh, or if you feel that they're not doing what you want. But the notion that politics doesn't matter, I always try telling that to my grandparents, who had to flee for their lives twice, and try saying that to people who have not been able uh, to get the democratic process we have and to have questions asked in the way we do. And I thought, therefore, that the story of not just what I do day to day and the experiences I've had, but the stories of how I am able to do that, building on these battles that people have had, might be an interesting tale to tell. Because if you go back a few centuries, 
you'll find that people were locked up for reporting on debates in the House of Commons. In the 1500s, the rules of the House of Commons stated that all that was heard in that place must be kept secret. And if it wasn't, it was punishable by being locked up. And the reason was because in those days, of course, Parliament was at part of that long struggle it had to control the power of the monarchy. And therefore, Parliament was often saying no, or beginning to say, often is overstated, but beginning to get its confidence to say no to the powerful monarch in terms of the taxes that that might want to be raised or the men that would be sent out to war. And therefore, MPs didn't want their debates to be known by who? Not the public, by the king. They didn't want the king and the king's men to know who had said no to the latest request because then they might be locked away themselves for daring to take them on. And it wasn't until a great struggle with a man called John Wilkes in the 1770s over the right to report that reporting of Parliament was really properly allowed. And what happened is an MP, by this stage, the odd report was beginning to appear of what MPs said. And an MP complained that what he said had been presented in a newspaper, and I know, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to be shocked by this when I tell you, a member of parliament had been presented, he said, as either an idiot or a villain, or sometimes both. I mean, can you imagine such a thing that anybody would think that about a member of parliament? And he was so outraged that he got all his fellow members of parliament to pass a motion, and the motion declared that not the person who'd written this, but the poor old printers should be arrested for this terrible treason. And they were arrested, and thanks to the struggle of a radical called John Wilkes, it's a long story, I'll give you the short version of it, he ended up with a riot outside the House of Commons in which people were protesting against this arrest, and the then Prime Minister had his carriage attacked. Uh, the carriage was destroyed, he managed to get out, fleeing in tears, but the thing that upset him most is his hat was destroyed. And Lord North swore from that day onwards, not that he changed the law, the law stayed in place for a very long time, but that he would not enforce the law to stop people reporting on what happened in the Commons. Now, this battle went on even after radio and television were invented. Because when radio, I don't know if people know why radio was invented or what it was first used for, are people aware of that? Like many things that we take for granted now, um, it was one of those things that was invented and then people thought of a new purpose for it. You know, you probably know this with your mobile phones, that when they invented text, they almost didn't put it on the mobile phone because nobody could think of a reason to have it. What was the point? Well, you know, you'd talk to people, wouldn't you? The same was true of radio. Radio was invented for safety at sea. It was shipped ashore. How do you get a message out to the boat to say that you've heard that there's trouble ahead? or that another boat's in trouble. That's what it was created for. And it was afterwards, they also wondered, jolly interesting, what could we do with this? And one of the first things they said uh, was broadcast concerts. And the second thing that was said, 1918, by one of the pioneers of radio, tremendous, he said, the debates of the elected representatives of the people could be heard in newsrooms up and down the country and by the people themselves. 1918, how long did it take before you could hear your MP debate in your house. Anybody got a guess? Six decades of struggle. So just like the struggle not to be arrested for reporting, there was a struggle to report on what MPs said. And in addition, 
Some of the older members of the audience may remember this, although I'm struck by how few do when I've asked the question. There were an extraordinary set of rules that the BBC had to operate by, even up till the late 1950s, something called the 14-day rule. And the 14-day rule stated, anything that MPs had debated in the previous 14 days could not feature on the radio or television at all. Think about that. Because Parliament must be the first forum of national debate. Not only that, anything that might be debated for the following 14 days could not be reported at all. There'd be a little news report, no discussion programmes, no debate, uh, no interviews. And what this meant was that during the Suez War, British troops sent to Egypt, extraordinary uh, intervention that split the country down the middle. Any questions? Do you know the programme, any questions on Radio 4? Rather like, if you don't listen to it, rather like question time on the telly, but on Radio 4. Any questions, as British troops are risking their lives in Egypt, what is the one subject they cannot discuss? The Suez War. The first question on this edition of Any Questions in 1956 was, does the panel regard the modern home as having carpets as a luxury or a necessity? <laughs> and one of the panellists said... I regard the carpet as an absolute necessity in order for putting the opposition on for their opposition to the war in Suez. <laughs> and at this point, the technician went, pulled the plug, took the programme off air. We had that sort of censorship in our country, legally, until the 1950s. So part of the reason I wrote this book, wherever it is here, I wrote the book, was because I wanted to tell some of the stories. And there's fun in the stories as well about the struggles that... Robin Day, one of my heroes, who broke the mould when he was recruited in the 1950s. Um, he was a guy, up until then, the people on the television had all been fabulously sort of good-looking, elegant, with lovely voices. And then ITN was created, the new news provider for ITV, and they recruited Robin Day as a former barrister. Whoever had the idea of a man with ridiculously large glasses appearing on the television? <laughs> Never catch on. Anyway, Robin Day did just that. And he started to ask real questions of politicians, questions they'd never been asked before. Before then, in the 1950s, famously, someone did an interview for the BBC in which Clement Attlee came back, what post-war leader, came back from abroad and was asked the searing question by a BBC, intrepid BBC reporter, is there anything else you'd care to say, Prime Minister? was his question, to which the answer from the Prime Minister... You can you imagine now? They think, great, a soundbite for the telly. The answer was, no. And then he walked into his meeting. That was his interview. But Robin Day asked proper questions and had proper arguments. So I'm in, if you like, the inheritor of all these battles that other people have fought. And it's allowed me to ask some of the questions. I also am an inheritor of my inspiration. I write about him in the book and I wanted to mention him to you today because I'm in the Northeast and one of the great children of the Northeast is a journalist called Brian Redhead who was editor of the Manchester Guardian for a long time, went to the Royal Grammar School and was my best friend's dad and was one of the reasons I wanted to, well really the reason I wanted to be a, a journalist was Brian and Brian had my favourite comment which was on the Today programme when he used to read out the weather. Luckily, it was not a day like today. And he, he got the weather, and it's always on the Today programme. They obviously don't write the weather, they're just given this sheet. And he said, um, it said on his sheet, brighter in the north than the south. And Brian said, 
like the people. <laughs> great, great. That's why I loved Brian. Brian was my inspiration. So I have since um, joining the BBC and then ITN and then the BBC been able to build on some of the experiences that people, people had. And I thought, like Robin Day, like Brian, it was the job to be a, you know, a bit cheeky, if you like, at times. And this has, over the years, got me into a little bit of, uh, little bit of hot water. Uh, very early on in my days as a reporter, which was in the days just before Labour came to power, uh, I did a report for the Today programme. And Claire Short had said something very, very rude about the spin doctors who worked for Tony Blair. Uh, she called them the men in the dark. And remember, she was in the shadow cabinet then. And I was called up by Peter Mandelson because it, such a panic was Tony Blair in. It looks ridiculous now because, of course, he won by a huge landslide. But such a panic he was in that anything might stop Labour winning that election against John Major in 1997. They had to kind and kill this story. And I just happened to be the duty reporter on the radio that morning. And they cobbled together a statement between Blair and Short designed to paper over the cracks between them. Uh, and I was given this statement to read out on the 8 o'clock news. And uh, I was only called at home at about nine minutes to eight, so it was a bit of a panic. So obviously, they were in a panic, I was in a panic trying to get it together. And then the editor of the Today programme phoned me up and said, you're the main guest. I said, what do you mean I'm the main guest? I've only been in journalism. I've only been a reporter for about three months. I said, no, but we can't get anybody else. It's far too late. You're it. And um, I found myself typing away and doing my report. And then this image. Do you ever find, ladies and gentlemen, that some words come into your head that you sort of know you probably shouldn't say? <laughs> but the difficulty is they're quite, you know, they're quite pithy. And, uh, and the other difficulty is they're there. And all your brain's doing is saying, shall I say them all, shall I? And there's no room for you to think of something else to say. Well, this was me. So I went through this interview in which I said, this is what Claire Shaw says, and this is what Tony Blair says, and this is what the Labour Party says. And then Sue McGregor, who then used to present the Today programme, asked me the question, said, well, what's your analysis? What does this mean for the future of the Labour Party? And I, I had that impression. I sometimes have one on my air. If any of you like, any of you like fast sports, if anybody skis or you like going fast on a bike or something, where well, you think, I'm just going to go. If you're on a bike and you're at the top of a hill... You think, I shouldn't, should I? thought, sod it, let's go. I had that slight sensation. Sorry, don't tell my employers that I speak like this, will you? Um, I had that slight sensation, it was time to let myself go. I said, well, I think Claire Short and Tony Blair are a little bit like a warring couple who are staying together for the sake of the children. And the problem, in this case, the Labour Party, and the problem is, of course, you invite them for dinner, they have a flaming row and end up throwing the crockery at each other. Peter Mandelson went berserk. He'd spent all night papering this crack over together and I just sort of ripped it open in this way. And the following uh, night, he rang up the Today programme and he said, there was another slightly difficult story for, for the government, uh, no, sorry, for the opposition the following day. And he said to the person editing the Today programme, who is going to do that story for you in the morning? And she said, none of your business. Quite right. And they, he said to her, if it's Nick Robinson, your career's at an end. I know the Director General, which he did, they were old friends from London Weekend Television where Michael used to work, your career would be at an end. Uh, and she said to her enormous credit, uh, she said to her team, and I only discovered this months later, she said, if we have to get Nick Robinson on discussing his garden, he will be on in the morning. <laughs> and I owe her my career in many ways because 
He said all sorts of nasty things about me, which she had no idea whether they were true. I was quite new. We didn't know each other. But she had the courage to say, no, no, you don't decide who's on the radio. We do. And that is part of the, the struggle we have. And it means that you have, from time to time, these little defining rides. I should say, Peter, actually, that I, I, when he worked for Gordon Brown, we got on like a house on fire. I mean, we, we, you know, I ended up having enormous respect for him. You, maybe if anybody's got questions about that, I can ask. You end up having these sort of defining moments. The other defining moment for me was George Bush uh, and asking questions of George Bush. Uh, I first clashed with George Bush when it was the, the war in Iraq. I used to regularly travel with the Prime Minister to summits with him, and Bush would come over for regular conversations. And on one occasion, um, the war in Iraq was going very badly, and a report had come out in the United States saying this. And uh, Bush and Blair were appearing at a news conference to discuss it. And to my surprise, there was no acknowledgement from the President about this at all. He just ploughed on as if nothing had changed. So I read out his quotes when it was time to ask a question. His quote, and I read out the quote from the report. And I said, um, Mr. President, doesn't this contrast in language mean that some people will think you're in denial about the war in Iraq? He was not pleased, I think it's fair to say. He said, it's bad in Iraq, sir, will that do? And I sat, I sat about where you are, and he was about where I am. And I thought, well, it won't do, because I need about 20 seconds for the news. And that was only about four. So I, uh, I thought, well, what do I do? So I suddenly thought, I said, I said, well, why didn't you say so before? This was the equivalent of a neutron bomb going off. In the, it was like all the oxygen had been sucked out the windows. I, suddenly, like, the head of the CIA was staring at me. And the Secretary of State. And uh, George Bush was not best pleased and started to finger stay. He kept saying, you, sir, should realise. And throughout the next hour in the news conference, he'd relax a bit, he'd talk, take a question from you. And so then he and you, sir, should realise. This is a sort of slightly kind of tense moment in which the BBC management stayed silent for a whole day before they decided I'd done a good thing rather than the firing thing that I deserved to be fired for. Anyway, a few months later, I returned to America with Gordon Brown for his first summit. And uh, I think, I can't do this trick twice. I'm going to be very low-key. So I put up my hand at a news conference, uh, and the president picks me up. I say, Nick Robinson, BBC, and he says, you still hanging around? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, thank you, Mr. President. It's a joy to be back in your country. Thank you very much indeed. And I asked my very tame question, uh, and I thought, phew, gone away with it. It's all gone. Now, this news conference was outside Camp David, the country retreat for the president, and they hadn't warned us it was going to be outside. And it was blazing, just like today, really, you know, sort of 95 degrees and blazing sunshine, blazing sunshine. And because I'd got no warning, I neither had a hat or any sunscreen, and it may have not escaped your attention. I'm a little bit uh, challenged on top. And I was now kind of throbbing, you know, like the old-fashioned Belisha beacons? I was sort of throbbing like this. And at the end of the news conference, Bush and Brown were together, and they were shaking hands for the photo opportunity, and behind them... This was the photo opportunity. It was Marine One, the helicopter that the uh, president has, like Air Force One. And uh, just as they're shaking hands, somehow he catches out of the corner of his eye, the president, I'm there going like this. <laughs> and he says, next time you should cover your bald head. <laughs> I'm being insulted by the leader of the free world on coast-to-coast <laughs> -coast national television. A rather absolutely surreal moment. They then turn round to walk towards the helicopter, because that's the photo 
of the two, you know, leaders of the free world will unite. And I'm like the little boy over here who's sort of, you know, sort of made a puddle in class at primary. I'm terribly kind of self-conscious like this. And then I'm afraid, couldn't resist the slightly smart-ass desire to say something back. So I said, but thinking I was whispering and he wouldn't hear, I said, I didn't know you cared. <laughs> Bush goes, I don't. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. So the joy of my job is you get to meet these extraordinary uh, characters and you get to... Uh, and you miss some of them. I particularly miss Bush. I miss John Prescott. I mean, I said there was a great battle to report what MPs said. Uh, and the tragedy is if they hadn't had that battle centuries ago, we would never have been able to report John Prescott saying, the green belt is a labour achievement and we intend to build on it. <laughs> Or, or my other favourite Prescottism, which was, um, uh, we have a plan to eliminate the young single homeless by 2014. <laughs> this idea that tanks would go down around the streets, so we wouldn't be able. So I miss them. I miss President Sarkozy terribly, you know. This is because he was just great character. I went to a summit once where we were worried about whether the euro would collapse and the world economy would be on its knees as a result, and Sarkozy emerged. And on microphone, forgetting, he'd just met, had this crucial summit with Angela Merkel. He walked out and he, um, excuse me, Michael, he walked out and he was wandering along and he's heard to say, um, she says she's on a diet, but she had a second helping of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And Sarkozy, uh, one of Sarkozy's spokesmen gave my favourite ever piece of spin that was done to the papers. There's a row about whether, should David Cameron be allowed to comment on the euro, given that Britain's not in the euro? And uh, only in France would a spokesman, official spokesman, on the record make the following statement. He said, it is like, it is like a man going to a wife-swapping party and not bringing his own wife. <laughs> 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 Who can uh, possibly disagree with that? But my, my favourite Sarkozy moment was about uh, Gordon Brown, actually. I did some filming uh, with Gordon, and Sarkozy was a surprise fan of Gordon Brown. I don't mean surprising because nobody should be a fan, but I mean it was surprising that he was a fan because, of course, he was a politician of the right, hugely admiring of a politician of the left, because he thought Gordon, he admired Gordon for what he'd done to try and deal with the world recession in 2008-9, that crisis. And so he invited Gordon over for a special dinner to thank him at the Elysee Palace. And there was a small table of diplomats and aides and uh, the two politicians. And suddenly there was a sort of chink on the glass. You know, up pops the president to say a few words. And he says, uh, and I know somebody was there. He says, Gordon. He said, you know, I should, I should hate you. And at this point, the diplomats are thinking, God, this is all going to go horribly wrong. Uh, I should hate you. He said, you're Scottish. We have absolutely nothing in common, and you're an economist. And by some reports, he added, and you're boring. <laughs> and at this stage, you know, the ambassador's sort of doing his jacket and thinking he's going to have to stand up and say, Mr. President, I really must object on behalf of London. But until Sarkozy suddenly says, but Gordon, I think I love you. <laughs> and then as everybody's relaxing, he says, but not in a sexual way. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is absolutely splendid. So I miss him as well. And in a, in a funny way, I miss Gordon Brown. Part of the book, the book is a, a story of the, the struggles, historical, which I'm writing about from a kind of third-person point of view. And it's also about my dealings, particularly 
with the Blair years and the Brown years, I decided I wouldn't write about the current uh, debates now because I have to report on it day by day and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair yet to kind of sort of stand back from it yet. Um, but although dealing with Gordon was very difficult, and I write about how difficult and challenging I found it because he hated being interviewed. He really loathed being interviewed. And many interviews finished with great sort of shows of anger and him walking off and, you know, the number of times that, that, you know, he was very angry and he'd have his lapel mic on that they do, which is attached with a wire. And Gordon was so cross, he'd walk off. And the person he was furious with, we were trying to save his life. Go, Prime Minister, you've still got your microphone on. And he's about to trip on the cable or break his neck. And um, he found the experience. And I've tried to, I hope, write about it in a way that tries to see it from his point of view, not just mine. At the time, we were frustrated with him and he was frustrated with us. But I've tried to ask the question about whether there's some failing in the modern media that someone who is clearly a one of the brightest politicians of his age, uh, a man of uh, compassion and a man of deep intelligence. Was there some failing in what we were doing in the way that we report on politics that made it so difficult uh, for him to succeed in a television age as he did? I mean, you remember, you remember Mrs. Duffy in Rochdale? That was, uh, he was quite a lot nicer about her when she wasn't listening than he was about me when I was listening <laughs> at times. So it gives you a little feel, I think, the Mrs. Duffy incident of what it was like for us doing those interviews. It could have been a lot worse, incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, because things go wrong on camera. Charles Kennedy once took the cameras when he was leader of the Liberal Democrats, took the cameras into a hospital in order to report on his election campaign. And forgive me, I'm going to use you as a prop if you don't mind. He, he bent down to the man in the hospital bed and said, excuse me, how are you going to vote? Cameras are going. The reply comes back, Liberal Democrat. He smiles. Then he, always stop when you're on top. Do you know that rule? It's just like, never ask the next question. What are you in for? Brain surgery. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not a good idea. And the, the last thing I, I do in the book, so I write about the history, I write about my own experiences, and the last thing I do in the book is try to look at the whole argument about bias. Because um, the thing I looked at when I looked at the history or examined was that we take for granted in this country the fact that the BBC and Sky and ITV, Channel 5 and the others, broadcasting, in other words, has a commitment to impartiality. And there may be... Lots of people in the room who go, well, I don't think they're bloody impartial. I think they're biased this way or that way. You may think that about me, indeed. But at least you, you know that there is, that's the aim. That's the objective. And what I wanted to do in the book is say, look, don't take that for granted because someone had to take... That's an active choice. And there's lots of reasons why technology might... Excuse me. Technology might mean that that goes. People might say, I was just interviewed by Jacob. Is he here? one of the young writers involved in this festival, he had his iPad in front of him. And Jacob, like any kid of that age, sorry, not a kid older than that, but you know, young person of that age, will just click on an app and he'll get American news and Chinese government news and Al Jazeera and BBC, and they're all the same. They've all got video and text and radio, and yet they've all governed by different rules. And one of the things I want to say is I think a challenge for the next 10, 20, 30 years is do we want to preserve what we've got which is the idea, and this is all I can claim to do, that I can't claim that there are unbiased people or impartial people. Nobody's born 
without influence. You are all shaped where you were born, who your parents were, rich or poor, schooling, political attitudes at home. We're all shaped by that in our experiences. But what broadcasters pledge to try to do, and it is about trying to do, is to try to put all of that aside and try and assess the day's news and get, this is what I claim to do, as close to what I think is the truth as I can that day. I don't, I don't, I'm not up for any of that nonsense that we tell you the truth. We can't do that. You know, there are only a few hours in the day. We get as close as we think we can in that day. And then the next day, when we realize what we didn't know, we try and get a bit closer. And we try and get a bit closer. That's all we can aim to do. Anyone who tells you anything else is, is pulling the wool over your eyes. But I would put to you, and I want to stop now to, get some, to take some questions, that it's still a worthwhile thing to do. And for all, I'm sure all of you ladies and gentlemen must have times where you shout at the radio or at the telly and say, I don't think that's fair, or why don't they say this, or shouldn't they come at it from this perspective? Um, I hope you feel, in general, and please do say, don't be polite in questions if you don't, that in general, that's what the BBC do, and that's what I try to do live from Downing Street. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. Um, you, the, the central thrust of the book, as Nick has said, is about this uh, centuries-long struggle to hold the democratic process to account. Uh, and one of the things that was uh, uh, surprised me, I suppose, because I'd kind of half forgotten it, was how recent the kind of legal restraints on that, uh, on the, uh, the world of journalism, how, how recent they, they, they mm -hmm. fell away. Um, but I'd, just to get us going, I, I wonder, given that those legal restraints have gone, what essentially is the nature of that struggle uh, in the contemporary age? And how, as a second, second thing, what is your own personal means of addressing that, uh, that task? Well, I think the, the big struggle is between, and it's a perfectly easy to understand from each side's perspective, politicians recognised a long time ago that their main way of communicating would have to be via mass media. There are some, just a little aside, who believe that the, the arrival of Twitter and of the internet and blogs may mean that they can bypass the mass media. I, I don't believe that for a second, actually. I think it's still the case, and I think it still will be the case for many years to come, that people get their sense of the world from shared mass media. They may get other stuff, lots of other stuff as well, but I think they'll still do that. Now, politicians have long recognised that, but understandably, they want to seek to control as much as they can what is said on the mass media so that it suits their purposes. And in a sense, why shouldn't they? And the, the frustration I think that Gordon Brown felt, for example, is he felt that he had big and important things to say about the world and that he was struggling to get the space and the time to say them. The job of journalists, it seems to me, is to challenge and to hold to account and to raise questions with people who are in power. And therefore, the Gordon Brown is a really good illustration of this. Gordon had taken a conscious decision that an argument between what he called nice Labour cuts and nasty Tory cuts wouldn't succeed politically. 
So there was a war going on in the cabinet between Peter Mandelson and Alastair Darling, who were saying we have to be more honest with the public and say that public spending is going to be cut dramatically. And nowhere more than, say, in the northeast is that a, a, an issue with real resonance. So many jobs in the northeast. I mean, when I was on the Durham Miners Gala, I, I noticed how many of the banners now are for public sector organisations, for teachers and doctors and for ancillary workers and so on. So nowhere does it matter more. Gordon felt that the public, in the South particularly, wouldn't buy that. And he wouldn't talk, therefore, about cuts. He'd never use the word. I saw it as my job, and I'll be honest with you, Michael, I saw it as my job to force him to confront that. I thought it was um, not being open with people. He knew there were going to be cuts, but he didn't want to talk about it. And I write in the book about one interview, which ends really unpleasantly, in which he accused me of accusing him of lying. I'd, I hadn't used the word lie. I'd said he wasn't being straight with people. But he, he regarded it. And he was very, very angry about it. But, and I think that, in a nutshell, is what it's about. I know why he didn't want to do it. Uh, but I did think it was my job to insist that I knew, not as a matter of opinion, but as a matter of fact, that whoever was elected would cut public spending. And indeed, that Alistair Darling's published plans were for dramatic cuts in public spending. And I felt it was my job to to challenge him to do that. So it is that struggle for control, if you like, and what occasionally it blows up into these great crises that the book is also about, Blair in Iraq. But there are, for every, what people forget, and I won't do them all because time will be too short, but for Blair in Iraq, read Churchill and the General Strike. People think this is new. In 1926, the BBC had only been going three years, uh, the general strike comes along, no national newspapers because they're all on strike. So Churchill, who's then Minister of Propaganda, thinks we must take control of the BBC. He actually uses the phrase that it'd be monstrous not to use this potential arm of propaganda. The Director General of the BBC, John Reith, says, no, no, we're an independent organisation, it can't be done. So that struck, they hated each other, Churchill and Reith, from that moment on. It's one of the reasons that Churchill wasn't able to broadcast before the war warning against German rearmament. He was effectively sidelined after this great personal struggle. Churchill and the general strike, Suez when Eden tried to take over the BBC, Wilson who regarded the BBC as a sort of part of a right-wing conspiracy to do the Labour Party down, had a hilarious row, it looks hilarious now, but it was a bitter row, on the eve of the general election in 1964, Wilson discovered that the programme on in the last hour before the polling stations closed was Steptoe You remember Steptoe You know, the, 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 the big comedy of the era. Massive audiences. He thought that the BBC had deliberately put on a comedy directed at northern working men who were the core to Labour's vote. And he rang up the Director-General and he said, you've got to take this programme off. And the Director-General said, what would you like us to put in its place? He said, Oedipus Rex. <laughs> And then the Director General said, I don't think we've got that. He said, any Greek tragedy will do. <laughs> <laughs> and unbelievably, actually, looking back, the Director General agreed to move the programme by an hour, and Wilson believed, wrongly, I suspect, but believed and said to his grave that it had got Labour 20 extra seats and a majority in the 1964 election. So this is the power struggle. Yeah. Uh, one last question from me. Um, looking at it from the opposite perspective, there's a famous quote of Tony Blair about the news machine as it now exists, the 24-hour rolling news, describing it as a feral beast. Yeah. Um, do you have any sympathy yeah, I do. of that? Yeah, no, I, I do. 
Yes, Tony Bear described it as feral beast in the idea that once someone is in the media spotlight, that, that, that the, the media operates like a pack was his idea, and it was sort of tearing at the flesh of the wounded animal, if you like, waiting to see if they would die. And I do. I've been in... Uh, I've not only witnessed the pack, but I've you know, arguably been part of that pack at times. And I do try to say in the book that we've... My one regret, and the good thing about writing a book is it forces you to reflect about some of the journalism of the last 20 years, is we've concentrated too much on what I call the three S's. You should never say a list of three, because you may forget one of them. But anyway, I think it splits... Sleaze, and what's the third? <laughs> I made a note of it. Did you? Actually. I'll find spin. it. Spin. Split, sleaze, and spin instead of substance. And I do think there's a danger that we, we, we've done that. Um, and I think there is a, an instinct of the media to go for a, just an X target. So, you know, you may want to ask me about that. The BBC is currently the, 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 the wounded animal because of the Savile uh, thing. Um, it, but it'll be somebody else's term another day. And I think all you can try and do is to step back. The one or two that I write about in the book where I took a conscious decision not to be part of that pack. Ruth Kelly was the education secretary under Tony Blair. And I don't know if you remember, there was a row about, I think it was called List 99. It was about paedophiles in schools. And there clearly have been errors about notifying. But I thought, is anyone seriously saying that Ruth Kelly, a mother of five, has willfully... Uh, neglected to get information out to school. I just thought it was not plausible. There were clearly errors, there were things to learn. And I did take a conscious decision. I mean, it's not my job to say someone should go or shouldn't go, but I did take a conscious decision to try to ask the question whenever I heard a new allegation. Hold on, what are you saying this means? It may be a mistake, but are you seriously saying that this woman sat at her desk and went, I tell you, it would be good to have a few more paedophiles in schools, wouldn't it? And I think occasionally the media, we don't, we're not, we don't ask ourselves, what's the, what's the implication of our question? Are we really suggesting that these people are uh, as wicked as sometimes it suggests? So you, you, you have to try and stand back sometimes. Do you, you believe in the cock-up theory of history rather than the conspiracy uh, uh, theory? I do indeed. Yeah, I do. Almost always. <laughs> well, it's time uh, to hear your questions. If you can please wait until a microphone gets to you. It might be nice to know who you are. There's a gentleman here on the right-hand side, about halfway back. Here we go, just here. Thank you. You uh, just touched on the Jimmy Savile thing in the media. I was something on the radio the other, yesterday or the day before when they were saying that the newspapers are taking advantage of this to really attack the BBC and they're blowing it. I, I, I'm not saying the thing should, is not true. Obviously, it, it, it seems to be. But do you think that, uh, that uh, the newspapers are going to make a field day of this because they want to get rid of the BBC or, or, or control it anyway? Well, the, f the first thing to say, because I haven't said it and it should be said, is that you know, the Savile Inquiry, the BBC isn't a victim. The people involved in it are a victim. The victims are the people who are abused. And... and, and for all conversations you and I can have about the tactics and the thing, it's not, it's not a pie thing just to say is, we now think hundreds of children, largely women but not exclusively, have gone through their lives 
not just with the horrific experience of sexual abuse, but with the horrific experience of sexual abuse at someone that other people regarded as a hero. And, and therefore, not just that sense that I won't be believed, but somehow maybe it was their fault. I think the most corrosive thing, I once, one of the first programs I made, I was a producer in television for a long time, one of the first programs I made was about sexual abuse. And I remember the horrifying realization that the victims often think it's their fault. Either that they were the victim or that they then didn't report it. Or, and so the first thing I want to say is, look, you know, we're all grown-ups. We can all live with this. You know, they're aroused about the BBC, so what? On the other hand, and the BBC clearly has huge lessons to learn about why it was allowed to happen, and we've got to learn lessons about our journalism as well, about my own view, and I'm waiting like everybody else for this inquiry to come out about why Newsnight didn't report on it when it could have done. My own view is cock-up, not conspiracy. I think there was a battle going on in that programme between the producer and the reporter and the editor, clearly. And I think we can probably all see that it would have been better if someone from outside had come and said, look, you think you've got a great investigation and he thinks you haven't got a great investigation, but you don't much like each other anyway. Maybe that's colouring this. Let's have a third party come in and just really go through it and see what you've got. And even if it don't, won't make quite air, make sure that that information reaches the people it needs to reach. But I've seen no evidence at all, and I'd be very, very angry, but also very surprised if I did see the evidence, that someone in management went, it's not convenient, this, will you drop it? I really haven't. And I used to make, I was deputy editor of Panorama, I was number two at Panorama for three years, and we did some very sensitive investigations. And there was never like that. And the reason, incidentally, sorry, I'll come to your newspaper point in a second, but the reason management has to be careful about not getting too involved, take the example of the BBC's relationship with a hero of mine, Alex Ferguson, I'm a Man United fan. You may know that Alex Ferguson refused to appear on the BBC for two years because, it may have even been longer, because we'd done an investigation into his son, an agent, which raised some difficult questions about how his son operated. If the head, the whole point of not telling people too much is that you don't want the head of BBC One or the editor of Match of the Day or Gary Lineker to say, to ring you up and say, I wouldn't run that if I were you, because that would be influence. So one of the reasons people are careful not to tell everybody what they're up to is precisely to protect them from influence. But clearly it didn't go well. So let's go to your question. So given all that, yes, uh, the papers that are furious about the Leveson inquiry and believe that the BBC kind of fed the um, what they regard as hysteria, are indeed trying to uh, damage the BBC from it, the Mail, the Sun, in particular, the Telegraph to a certain extent. Um, but, you know, they're entitled to their view and I, I don't... My hope is that people have seen... have a sort of innate faith that the BBC tries to... You know, makes cock-ups, like all organisations, but in the end confronts them and moves on and is in the end full of people trying to do their best uh, and I think we'd just shrug it off because if we listened to what they were saying about us every day we'd close down tomorrow and I see no evidence that that's what the public wants you know, if, if I thought it represented what the public wanted we'd have a reason to be worried I think the level of polls uh, uh, about the public's trust in the BBC always seem to be very high, mm -hmm. don't they? they, they I should seem ask, to... would you mind me asking? Yeah, I mean, just, just, uh, has your trust in... The, um, don't mind either way, really. I'd just be interested. Hand, hands up if you wouldn't mind. 
Who, who, who's, who's trust in BBC journalism? I mean, not about caring for children, but has been shaken by the Savile, Savile thing. Not, not many putting their hands up. Okay, there's one at the back. Okay. But there are obviously questions that need to be answered. Okay, next question, please. Uh, this young man here on the, in the front row. Hi, uh, my name's Sam from the University of Sunderland, and I work at Spark FM, which is a community radio station. Um, I just want to kind of touch on what you were saying about bias and uh, sort of how you try and be as impartial mm. as you possibly can be. Um, I'm going to guess that you've probably worked on a story where someone's felt that you've been biased and then you've received kind of hateful messages, anything sort of that type of thing, I'm going to guess with you being sort of on the TV nearly every other day mm. that that's bound to happen. Um, does that sort of then go on to share future stories as well? Well, yeah, it's a, it, it, there's always a danger. I mean, the, the one downside of Twitter and blogs, I mean, the upside is it gives people interaction. And therefore, we get instant feedback from viewers and listeners to our stories. The downside is you get, if you just put my name into Twitter, but don't look at what I say, but what so people say, I get a lot of abuse every day. And my wife has now banned me from reading it before going to bed because it's upsetting. Uh, and you try, you know what it's like in life. Ten people say something nice and you forget it and one person says something horrible and you, you, it sticks in your head. And I do get a lot of, um, you know, abuse. Now, I'm lucky I'm not a woman. Women get abuse of a sexual nature as well. They get abuse. Jewish people get it. Of, you know, people write very horrible things when they think it's sort of anonymous and it's instant. And people, we saw that with the, the diver. Tom Daly, didn't we, that horrible case. Um, so you do get, and obviously you try that. What I'm trying to filter through when you look at it is to say, well, what's real and what, what isn't? And the thing that I think I, and I would urge you to do, if you do complain, complain about a specific, because it gives something, it forces you to ask a question. If somebody says to me, you know, the problem with you, you're a Tory. Or if they say, a problem with you, you're, um, I don't know, you're anti-climate change theory or what, whatever it is, or you're not in favour of animal rights. Where am I supposed to go with that? Doesn't, there's nothing I can engage with. If you say, I thought that question was not fair for this reason, I thought that sentence was inappropriate, I thought that you didn't ask this question, you can then challenge yourself and ask yourself questions and say, hold on, well, did I come to this with an assumption? But no, I hope it doesn't shape it. You try not to let it shape it. You also, sometimes when you get abuse from politics, I mean, Peter Mandelson, the key thing about that Peter Mandelson story was, I had, it's the only time I've not slept because of work. I mean, I honestly thought I was going to be fired. Uh, and I didn't sleep. And after three days, I thought, you know what, you couldn't do this. You can stand up to this man. And so long as you're fair, you live on. And I, it actually was a hugely strengthening experience because I suddenly thought, I'm, you know, fear disappeared. Uh, respect stayed, but fear went. I just thought, that's fine. You know, I'm new in my career, I have survived this. And actually, as I said to Michael before we came on stage, Peter and I became, I don't know if he'd used the words friends, but I spoke to him when he was effectively Gordon Brown's deputy. I probably spoke to him four or five times a week. I mean, he was an invaluable and wise source of information. But, I mean, in a positive way for Gordon. I don't mean he was a gossip, he was a... You know, he, 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 that government wouldn't have survived without Gordon, without Peter holding it together. Thank you. Next question. Uh, um, 
Come on, again on the front row. And there's somebody else on the front row, so maybe the microphone can go to this lady first. And then if you could pass it along, <laughs> save us a bit of time. Is that on? Yeah. Um, I've got two questions, actually, that's okay. Um, the first one, I wonder, do you feel like there's, um, as a person, you know, reporting on things, do you feel like you've got some kind of influence on what policymakers, um, what decisions they make or what politicians understand? Or do you have a kind of feedback from that sense? Um, and my other question is, um, when Blair came, became party leader, um, he created a whole media machinery. And do you feel like this media machinery is still in place today? Um, I know you didn't want to comment in your book about today's politics too much. Right. But um, also, um, do you feel like there's a big struggle between that, what they're trying to, um, what information they're giving out to you and what you can then do with that information? Yeah, so the first thing about whether, whether I think I should influence, I shouldn't be. You know, it's not my job to, to influence which policies are chosen. I suppose, you know, because th there's always a danger when people ask journalists, they go, oh no, I don't have any influence at all, and it all, you, you probably all say that, don't be ridiculous, you know, kind of be more self-critical. So I think what we can, what journalists can do is, my example about Gordon Brown is a classic example. I did feel, and I had felt for years actually, because I had a, there's another run-in I write in the book about, I have a run-in with Tony Blair over a poster he produces. I mean, it's quite funny every time for a month. We're a bit short of time, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, read the book. <laughs> but there's a, 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 where essentially I was trying to say, I think politicians need to be more open about the choices in public spending and tax. This was obvious for a decade that there were difficult choices that politicians didn't want to confront people with. And it doesn't matter whether you're sympathetic to the left and you want more tax and more spending, perfectly legitimate, you want less tax, you've got to be more open about it. And therefore... I suppose, yes, if I look back, did I have an influence? Yes, because I chose to constantly ask about it. But otherwise, I don't think it's my job to, to do that. The media machine is different from Alistair Campbell's day, partly because Labour itself came to the view that it had gone too far. It was trying to control, partly because the arrival of Twitter and the arrival of, you know, when I was, forgive me, your age, apples and blackberries, you put them in pies, right? You didn't carry them in your pocket. There were three TV channels. There was no internet. We've now moved to an era where you simply cannot control, and I try and write about what impact that has. But I think, therefore, the media operation now is less obsessed with what's said in the next hour and tries, and this is what Cameron is trying to do, five, six times a year to find events that he does that show him in a good light. And they obsessively work you know, when they paused the health reforms, enormous amounts of work was done about the backdrop and the pictures and the nurses who were there and what words he'd say, and they market research the words. So they're doing it in a different way. Thank you. And uh, my shorter answers. Just, just to hear the gentleman on the end. Thank you. Thanks, I think, uh, Just wondering about your reflections on Tony Blair. Yeah. Um, he was generally, perhaps, uh, as compared to Gordon Brown, regarded as a master of the media. And uh, just wonder what you thought his contribution was and your own thoughts, particularly about the policy of taking, taking us into Iraq. Um, well, for obvious reasons, because of what I've said about impartiality, I don't have a view of whether we should uh, have gone into Iraq or not. I mean, I think, um, at least you didn't ask me the question. Somebody from the Northeast, I, was, I took my kids on holidays to San Francisco. 
and I'd just flown and not slept. You know when you haven't slept on the flight, you're all in economy, don't you? And I was buying them a pizza to keep them up. And some guy from, with a very strong Geordie accent came up to me and he said, uh, I won't try the Geordie accent because it really offended everybody because I'd be rubbish at it. But he said, oh, Mr. Robinson, I'm really glad I've seen you. Not, and he said, me and my mother have always been arguing. Do you think Tony Blair's a socialist? <laughs> <laughs> and I've not been to sleep for about 28 hours. And I've got these children worrying about whether they should have pepperoni or not. And you know, the weird thing about my, in my job, I said, well, I think, and I said, I'm really sorry, I'm on holiday and we're having pizza and can I get back to you later? You didn't ask me that. What do I think? Um, do you want me more to focus on the Iraq thing or do you want me more to focus on the media? Because I know time is time. On the media, okay. Look, he was one of the great communicators, post-war communicators, if not the best. He had a stunning capacity to communicate. And in Iraq, I, um, I took six anti-war protesters into Downing Street to, to meet him for ITV News, where I was then working. And what was the amazing thing, I mean, they went in angry with him. And he spoke to them in his own office. And then afterwards, I mean, he's a genius at this, Tony said, um, would you like to see the cabinet room? So he brought them into the cabinet room, and I went in. He said, not in you, Nick. You've been lots of time. Out you go. I want to talk to these people in private. And he spent 40 minutes with them. This is after, off camera, uh, and just said, come on. What do you want to ask? And they were utterly charmed by him, even though they were anti the war. And obviously, he had this amazing capacity to communicate one to one and to a mass audience. And yet, hanging over him now is this sense that the country has that he did the wrong thing. He got he got his decision wrong. And it's um, tragedy is too strong a word. Tragedy is for the people who died in Iraq. Tragedy is not for him. But it's 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 um, it's an extraordinary. Thing. Whether people will reconcile that before he dies, I don't know. But it seems to me there is something rather sad about him as an individual. He's an amazingly effective, powerful individual. Obviously produced a lot of change. I suspect a lot of people in the North East welcomed. Um, and yet can't walk the streets, can't go to a bookshop, can't go to a... You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. Robert Harris's novel, The Ghost, captures a bit of that, I think. There is that quote, isn't there, about all political failures, all, all political careers ending in failure. Yes. And, uh, yes. So arguably, that's the case with him. One last question, I think. Um, there's a lady in the third row, just here. We got. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, Nick. I've been fascinated by politics since I was told at college not many girls are good at this, <coughs> which is all I needed. So I follow it almost slavishly. But I sometimes feel now, particularly the 24-hour media, that it isn't always news, it is speculation. Mm -hmm. And I sort of end up screaming sometimes at you, please don't tell me what he is going to say. Tell yes. me when he said it and what it means. Yeah, no, I, I, look, I, I know that. And Matthew Paris once wrote, a, you know Matthew Paris in the Times? I don't know if you know him, right? he's a very good writer wrote a lovely piece once that he'd screamed at the radio, as you were obviously doing, because he'd heard someone react to the reaction to the release of a speech that had yet to be delivered. <laughs> so having an argument about the argument about something that had yet to be said. And I think you're, you're right uh, to do that, and I, my apologies if we sometimes uh, do that, because I know we do. Um, and I think we have to get... I can only just say, yeah, must try harder that we do have to just... I, I do say in the book that sometimes the best question is to say, what are you planning to do? Why are you planning to do it? That we have to not get ahead of ourselves too much. 
in what we do. Um, so beyond saying, I think you've got a point, excuse me, and you're not the only one. I mean, I think what we're trying to ride the balance, I suppose, just to, to, to give you a sense of why it's difficult, is this speed of the machine within Westminster, where everybody's following each other on Twitter and knowing what's happened, and the fact that you have to just pause and say, hold on, most people have been at work or put, making the tea or, you know, picking up the kids or doing some DIY, and they just once a day. You see, we've got, we, our problem is we've got different audiences. We've now got the audience for whom the 10 o'clock news is the only news they may properly have engaged with that day and is still that sort of appointment. I don't know, is it, I'd be very interested. You might, have we got time, Mark, very quickly? Just, just for how many people here, and I won't, again, won't be offended, is the 10 o'clock BBC News, you know, not every night, but, you know, a couple of times a week, the thing you'll tune to to, to get your sense of the day's news. Okay, so it's quite a sizable, I suppose it would be, it's a sample of people who've been interested in someone on it. But for every one of those people, there are some who are listening all the time on Twitter or maybe they've got Five Live on, and the 10 o'clock news has to say something new. It can't simply... My, my editor used to say that the 10 o'clock news has the news as its jumping off point. Its job is not to do the news, because you can get that on your phone. It's to say, what's the added value? What's the thing we can... Can we give you an interview, a bit of analysis, a bit of explanation, a bit of footage from Siri you've not seen? So that, so that if... Otherwise, you could just go to a radio little summary, get it in a minute and a half, or on your phone or on your computer and get it. So we're trying to add some value, but I'm sorry if that sometimes becomes annoying. Thank you, Nick. Um, I think uh, I'm getting the classic TV producer wind-up signals from the back. Um, can, I, can I just say yeah. a last word, Michael, which yeah. is that um, um, what, what they're doing afterwards is that those people who buy a book can go out the back door, and those who aren't, we're going to keep hostage here. <laughs> for no, I didn't mean it. I, I just, can I just say before Michael winds up, last, thank you very much. It's been really enjoyable for, for me and interesting. And I know hardbacks are expensive, but if you feel you can do, and if not, thank you for coming. Um. Uh, hopefully, without being accused of sucking up, it is a good read. I, I do recommend it. Um, please, uh, could you allow, before everybody leaves, could you allow Nick to make his escape to the back of the hall and get into the room, which is at the left as you, as you leave, which is where he'll be signing copies of the book. Uh, and in the meantime, let's give one final applause to Nick Robinson. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.